Okay, so I, what we're going to talk about now is the, the looking at the, the big story. And, and what I'm hoping is that it will provide some kind of framework within which to contemplate or think about the place of eschatological judgment and so on. So I'm trying to provide a framework. What you might notice is I'm doing the exact opposite of what normally happens in talks about hell. <laughs> I'm, I'm sort of holding back on the hell stuff. And, and then we'll come to it briefly later. It would be nice to spend more time on it, but there is not loads of time, so I'm providing a context for, for the discussion. And I did this deliberately in the Evangelical Universalist too. Everyone starts talking about hell by going straight to passages about hell, and I held them back until, I can't remember, chapter 7 or something, because then you're in a position to go and think about them and, and to do it a little bit more intelligently, I think. I might be wrong, but that's what I think. I found my own way into the whole discussion about universal salvation through this whole issue of looking at the, whole, the, the big story. In fact, I, I can trace back the, the, my first thoughts along these lines long before I knew I was even thinking along these lines. I was, about 1992, I started thinking, how can I put Tom Wright's big picture thing of the New Testament, which wasn't very well known at the time, uh, he subsequently, everyone knows it now, but it wasn't really very well known. And I was thinking, I want to put in diagrams for student, students of theology and stuff like that. So I started to do this, and I couldn't make it work because whenever I put hell into the picture, it didn't make sense. Uh, and so I put the whole thing aside for years. I thought, I can't make it work. I'm sure it must work somehow. But subsequently, when I eventually came to think about universalism and contemplate it as a possibility, suddenly that all seemed to make sense. Now I could understand why the hell it didn't fit. And the prob I just assumed it had to, but actually it made more sense when I... And so those pictures eventually appeared in the Evangelical Universalist as part of my rationale for universal salvation. And I never would have really got to it if it wasn't for Tom Wright. And the only things Tom's ever written on universalism are to critique it. So uh, I'm sure he's horrified at the thought that it was him that led me there. So maybe then we need to, we could talk about the Bible as a big story, but let's, or we could think about it like a symphony. Think of it as a piece of music, the beginning and a middle and an end. And when we're contemplating the end of the symphony, which is what we're doing with eschatology and hell and universal salvation, all that kind of stuff, we're asking the question, which ending to this symphony fits best, which is the most discordant? So we're trying to, or if we're thinking of it in terms of a story, which ending to the story sort of has a narrative logic, fits with the plot of the story in the direction, and which ending do you sort of leaves you feeling dissatisfied, like that doesn't make sense in this story. Uh, so that's the way uh, we're going to be thinking about hell. Because everlasting hell and universal salvation are, in effect, alternative endings to the biblical symphony. So which of those two endings is the most harmonious and which of them is discordant. And the critical point then is that we don't isolate discussions of hell from this bigger story. It's not independent. It can't be considered independently. It has to be considered within this framework. Now, in theology, everything's like a spider's web in, in theology. It's all interconnected. And so what you do, you start twanging around with one bit of the web and it sends shockwaves through the whole rest of it. And when you start talking about eschatology, you can't just talk about hell and eschatology without it affecting everything. And what, something that you say about everything, and everything's interconnected. And likewise, what you say about anything else is going to send shockwaves and have implications for your eschatology. 
So what we're going to try and do is consider eschatology. And here's a funny thing. Just before I came up earlier, I suddenly realized that in this talk about eschatology and the biblical story, the one thing I forgot to actually give any attention to is eschatology. <laughs> I got so engrossed with how it links to everything else, I never actually had a section on it in the talk. Duh. <laughs> like leaving out the very topic that you're talking about. But that's because it kind of crops up everywhere. And so maybe we'll discover that we've actually talked about it without realizing it. So let's talk about creation and eschatology, because creation is not just about beginnings, it's about endings. Eschatology, or your view of the end, is implicit in your theology of creation, because on any theology of creation, you tend to think that creation is created for something, and the eschatology is in the for bit, created for fill in the blank space. That's your eschatology. So here are some texts that, that, that relate to this. Romans 11, for, it's talking about Christ. From him, through him, and to him are all things. All things, as Paul says in Colossians, are created for him. So here's our eschatology. All things are to him, directed towards Christ. All things are for him. They, they exist for him. But this, of course, for Paul, is, of a, is a seamless robe, a seamless garment that flows, everything flows from him and to him. The way that this was put in Hellenistic philosophy sometimes is the exitus et reditus, exit and return. And this idea, while, it, 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 while the terminology itself came out of Hellenistic thoughts of the universe, the cosmos arising from the divine and returning to the divine, Lots of Christians found it a very helpful way of organizing and thinking about this idea that creation is from God and goes forth from God and returns to God, that God is the destiny as well as the origin of creation, and that these two are intimately and, and, and essentially interconnected with one another. So creation's destiny is anticipated in its origin, and its origin looks ahead to its destiny. You can't consider the one without the other. So whatever we're going to say about hell is going to have implications for what we're going to say about creation. And that bears thinking about, because sometimes I do think that some people are so keen to preserve hell, they're willing to sacrifice all sorts of other really important doctrines, the doctrine of God and creation and so on, on the altar of preserving hell, and you wonder if it's really worth it. So what is, what is the end? What is that goal that creation has been made for? Well, we've already said, and maybe putting it slightly differently, God is the destiny of creation. All things are to him. All things are for him. Nowhere I am aware of in the Bible is it ever suggested that creation is made for alienation from God. Right? That is never stated as God's intentions in creation. The world is made to be cut off from God. I mean, it's just, if anyone ever suggested that, they'd be laughed out of court. It doesn't make sense. Now, another important idea connected to the theology of creation and very influential in the tradition is this idea of humans as the image of God. The image of God, I would suggest, is a status. It's about who we are. And it's a calling. It's about what we must do. So in a sense, the image of God is like boots that we grow into. 
it's, it's a destiny, it's a calling. And this, this idea is really elaborated on in the whole idea of Christ being the truly human one. And I'll say a bit more about that in a sec. And we see uh, that becoming more Christ-like is all about becoming more human. It's about becoming, truly becoming the image of God that we are created to be. Now, as a calling and a destiny, what the, to image God in Genesis, I think, is all, is all tied in with this creation theology. And a lot of you are familiar with this idea that, that, that Eden is presented in sort of like a temple uh, terminology. There's lots of temple ideas and terminology going on in the story. And the human the, is a tselem, an image of God. Now, everyone in the ancient world knows what images are for in temples. These are like statues of gods that you stick in the temple. And the statue of the god is filled with the spirit of the god. It wasn't just a statue. It mediated the presence of God and the reality of the deity, whichever deity we were talking about, these pagan idols. They thought that the spirits of the deities resided in them and were mediated through them so that when you encountered the, the statue, you were, through it, encountering the deity. Well, in a very bold and radical move, ancient Israel forbade, uh, or God forbade, the creation of any statues because God had made his own Selem, his own image. And it was these other images, they're lifeless. They can't talk. They can't do anything. They can't hear you. But God has made an image, which is human being, that speaks and acts and does things and is created then to represent the presence of God in creation and to be filled with the divine spirit, to mediate divine rule and dominion and presence into creation. That's a calling. It's not just something you are. It's something that you grow into and live into. It's a destiny as much as an origin thing. And which is why the whole story of the Bible, in a sense, could be told in terms of the image of God. It's about humans. It's about that image being defaced, and it's about that image being reinscribed through Christ and the Holy Spirit transforming us into the image of Christ so that we become, so that this, this thing that humans were always created to be, we become in the end. So image of God, then, is very much to do with eschatology because it's to do with what we were created for. It's our destiny. And in terms of this, many of the church fathers talked about the human destiny in terms of theosis, or deification, or God became man or human so that humans become God. It's very bold language. They were very careful how they explained it, because it can be, and it could be misunderstood to be humans become the same as God in the way that God is God, and that's not what they meant. So they always were careful to say they don't mean that you become God in your essence in the way that God is God. It would be unintelligible to become God. Uh, that wouldn't make any sense for all sorts of reasons. But in fact, the unity with God or the union with God is of such an intensity that, that there is a sense in which you do become gods with a little g. I mean, it's, it's bold and radical, but it is there in the tradition from the start and, and has been argued and very convincingly that it's not just in orthodoxy, but it runs through the Western tradition too and through the Protestant tradition too, not always using that language, but the conceptuality is there through all of these different traditions. Now, this is eschatology, and it is implicit 
in the whole idea of image of God, which, as I've already said, is to do with being indwelled by the Spirit of God and representing the presence of God in creation and so on, which is sort of stepping towards this idea of, of theosis. What we don't find, though, in Scripture is, this, is the idea that humans are created to go to hell, that, or humans are created for judgment, or that's the destiny that God made humans for. So the theology that God created some people for that purpose is really quite alien to scripture. It's a theology that arises, and it, there are people who argue this. There is a theology in which, in which, and I'll say a little bit more about it later, but in which God creates the world in order to display his glory, and the fullness of his glory requires that God display not only the glory of his love, which the elect show, but the glory of his justice and wrath, uh, which the reprobate, the sinners who go to hell there. And they are created specifically for the purpose of the displaying of God's glory in justly punishing sin with eternal torment, which is what it deserves. And this is a glorious thing. It displays God's glory, and it had to be that way. I mean, it's, uh, so God couldn't actually save everybody, it would, even if he wanted to. Well, he wouldn't want to because he wants to display his glory. Uh, this is a completely alien theology to Scripture. I mean, I would love to see someone try and argue that from the Bible. Actually, they do, but they try. And, and so this, sharpening this up a little bit, Christology sharpens up our understanding of creation, and it confirms what I've, I've already said, because Christ is the truly human one. I mean, in a sense, you know, being a human being is not something we are, it's something we're working towards. Christ is the only human being in the sense of reaching the goal of what human beings are created to be. Human being is something I'm becoming. <laughs> I'm becoming more human, well, hopefully, you know, with a few setbacks en route uh, as I go along. So we see human most clearly in Jesus, what this image of God stuff's about, because he is the second Adam. He is the one who represents humanity before God. And that means that he brings the human story to its destination. There's this terrific bit in 1 Corinthians 15 where the first Adam was a, a living soul and the second Adam is a life-giving spirit. So the first Adam, so Paul's doing these Adam and Christ contrasts, the first Adam and the second Adam. The first Adam wasn't. So sometimes we have this view that, that God created the first Adam. It was all finished and done and then it all went wrong and Jesus takes it back to where it was. But that's not how it is in Scripture. The first Adam was created, but he wasn't finished. You know, he was created a life-giving soul, but what God intended for humans was what we see in Christ. Sin doesn't take Adam away from the, the, the place that God wanted him to be. Sin derails him from getting to the place God was, was taking him, the, the sort of destination. And so what we see in Jesus is this destination that God always had for human beings, which was conceptualized in different ways in the text, glorification, to be filled with divine glory, the, the light of divine presence, resurrection, ascension to, to, to the presence, to the side of God. These are the human destiny. So the destination for humans is glorification, resurrection, and ascension. Now you might think, well, what's that got to do with hell, right? Well, he's, not talk he's meant to be talking about hell, man, and you're not talking about hell. Uh, well, I am really because I don't see it there. 
<laughs> Maybe not talking about hell should, should tell us something about hell. So the question is this, which eschatology best fits the creation story that we're looking at? So we've got the two, we've got two on offer. Is it one in which humanity is united to God? Or is it one where many, some, many, most people are eternally separated from God and damned forever, which seems the most good. And, you know, I mean, this one question on its own is not going to settle the issue, but it's a question. Which one is most cordant, you know, discordant, which one is most harmonious? Now, eternal hell, then, has implications for your theology of creation, and it's going to mean one of two things, I think. If you're going to argue for eternal hell, you have to consider one of two routes to go. Well, you might not phrase it quite as <laughs> the way I have. A problematic doctrine of creation or the eternal thwarting of God's purposes in creation. But in the end, this is what it boils down to. So either you're going to say, look, I think the story it begins like this, but it ends in hell. Well, either you're going to have a problematic doctrine of creation. That means you're going to say, it ends in hell because God made some creatures to go to hell. That was, there in, that was God's purpose in making that person to send them to hell. Okay, I would suggest, for various reasons, that is a problematic doctrine of creation. And, and you want to think very carefully before uh, swallowing that pill. I mean, you might think you've got to. And if you do, do it. But it's a hard one to... You want to think carefully before doing that. Or, on the other hand, you take the Arminian route and you go, yeah, you know, God didn't want that. God did have all these lovely, glorious destinies, but God just couldn't bring it about. God was thwarted. Maybe for most of his creatures, God's purposes were thwarted. Well, okay, but that's also quite a bold move. And you want to think very hard before swallowing that pill. And I think one of the benefits of uh, universalism, uh, one of the things that commends it, is that it allows us to hold on to this great creation theology and then just say, hey, God wins, you know? God achieves the purposes God set out to achieve. Hurrah! I mean, that's good. And we get to preserve all of this stuff and not have to sacrifice anything. You know, you can have your cake and eat it. It's brilliant. <laughs> and why, why have a cake if you can't eat it, really? So that's what universalism is. It's a theology that says God fulfills God's purposes in creation. That's it. What about sin? Now, what about sin? Universalists are often accused, as I've said already, of having a weak theology of sin. And sometimes I dare say that's true, but it doesn't have to be true. Sin is something that diverts humanity away from its orientation towards God. If God creates human beings for God's self, then humans have some kind of orientation towards God and are made for that, made to find their fulfillment and their very human identity in that relationship. Sin is something that turns humans away from that. So... Sin sets humans on a course away from God, and God is the very source of life, and so this is, a, this is inevitably then a course towards death, away from life, towards death. And what that means is that sin blocks the road. So the consequences of this is, this is alienation from God and spiritual death, and we all know the biblical texts about but, you know, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, the wages of sin is death, and all of that kind of stuff. It's all the stuff you learn at, you know, evangelical boot camp or whatever. But they're important texts, because there's an important point to make here, that you can't find your, 
your destiny, creation's destiny, it can't reach its destiny without reaching its destiny in God. And anything that tries to do it in another way is inevitably going to misfire and go off in, in ways that cannot bring about that destiny. And of course, the biblical view is that all people are affected by sin in, in different ways, m countless different ways, but all affected by sin and all sort of directed away from God. And what this means in terms of the plot then, of the, the biblical plot, is that there's like a roadblock. Here's God made creation, and it's creation made to go on its journey towards its destination, but it can't get there because of the roadblock, which is sin, that has to be dealt with in some way to enable creation to get from A to B, if that makes sense. So what we have then is a, a major uh, narrative complication in the plot. And, and much of the story of scripture is about how God deals with this roadblock, this narrative complication, how God gets creation to the destiny for which he made it. So all of this universalists can affirm. There's, there's nothing about universalism that says you can't say everyone sins. There's nothing about universalism that says you can't say sin is bad. In fact, historically, universalists have made a big deal about how bad sin is and and, and that's great. All you need to be a universalist is a really robust theology of God's grace and salvation. Right? You, you can make sin as bad as you like. You can make it super duper ultra bad. And all you need to have is Christ being stronger and pff, doesn't matter. You, you know, Christ wins. So you can't go, oh, sin's so bad it stops God achieving God's purposes unless you think sin is bigger than God. And you can go there if you like but then you would be a heretic. <laughs> so let's think a little bit about the relationship between sin and hell because the theology of divine retribution and the theology of the severity of sin and just how bad it is are what prop up the, 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 the traditional doctrine of hell. But it needs more than that. It's not enough to say sin is really bad and God is just and will punish sin. You know, you can, those would be essential ingredients in a traditional doctrine of hell, but that you need more than that. Because you also need to say, and I've already suggested this, that God's solution to sin somehow doesn't completely work. All right, and it, so, so sin can be really bad, and God's just, yeah, but that's not going to get you to hell. You're only going to get to hell if you say, and God's solution doesn't work properly or it doesn't somehow apply as widely as, as, as you might hope or as you might think scripture teaches. So, doctrine of hell is built on a theology of sin and God's response, but does human sin, this is the question I have then that I'd like you to contemplate, does human sin rather than God's creative purpose determine the destiny of the cosmos? So what is it that's gonna determine the future? Is it your doctrine of creation or your doctrine of sin? Is it creation and what God sets out to achieve in creation? Is that what's going to determine the future? Or is sin the thing that writes the future? And the final destiny of creation, which of those two, uh, is the one that's going to do it? And let's put that question in a slightly different way. Is the Bible story one of ultimate tragedy or triumph? In other words, is the Bible story one in which sin wins, at least for a significant percentage of God's creation, or is it one in which God wins? And you might say, well, that's just a loaded question. You know, if 
spinning the... Well, it seems to me a perfectly legitimate question, and I would be interested to hear what uh, somebody had to say about it who wanted to defend a traditional view of these things. Does God allow, let's put the question slightly differently, sin to derail his purposes for all creation forever? Or not? Really, it boils down to what God has done about sin. That's the question. What has God done about sin? And is God's response to sin big enough to undo sin? And if it is, then no matter how terrible sin is, God can still save everybody. So let's have a look at the story of salvation. The Bible is a big, long story about God uh, acting to undo the impact of sin and bring creation to the destiny for which he made it. And it's a very Christocentric story. I mean, it's often said, and I mentioned this in the first talk, that universalism sidelines Jesus. But classical Christian universalism doesn't, not at all. It is completely focused on Jesus. Its doctrine of creation and redemption and eschatology is all Jesus-focused. In creation, we say, along with all Christians, God created all things through Christ. That's a very Christocentric view of creation. But redemption, we say God reconciles all things to himself through Christ. It's a very Christocentric view of salvation. And the eschaton, the destiny for which God is taking creation, is that one day God will unite all things under him, under one head, which is Christ. Again, it's a very Christocentric view of, of the eschaton. It, it is not remotely about sidelining Jesus. It's about making Jesus front and center throughout the whole narrative. So let's have a little look at that narrative and how it works works out and links to the issue of eschatology and universal salvation. So the incarnation, the story of how God acts by becoming flesh, becoming a human, living among us as Jesus Christ. And as fully divine, the logos or the word of God represents and reveals the invisible God to humanity. Nobody's ever seen God, says the Bible, but we've seen Jesus because he's made flesh. And so we see the glory of God in him, in, in his life. And, there, and so Jesus is the definitive revelation of the invisible God in, in classical Christian theology. So here's a question then. What kind of God do we see in Jesus? And what divine purposes for people do we see in Jesus? What do we see that God's wanting to do in Jesus? And sometimes I wonder, and Thomas T.F. Torrance had this thing about people who tried to talk about another God hidden behind the back of Jesus Christ. This is the sort of phrase he used. It's like God has revealed himself in Jesus, but actually what God's really like is something quite different. He's like a, a hidden God, a different God, hidden behind Jesus. And he's saying you can't have a theology that does that, that God is something very different and other than what God has revealed himself to be in Christ. Christ has to be absolutely definitive for our understanding of who God is. So I think... It seems to me that there is a very serious question to ask here about is it that this idea that God is really 
creating people to damn them and so on. Is this actually postulating a different God hidden behind the back of Jesus? We see one God revealed in Jesus, which is uh, where God is acting to heal and restore and, and show compassion and all that. But actually, what God's really like is something quite different from that. Because that would become very problematic for Christian theology, I think. But if God is really like God has revealed God's self to be in Jesus, then what does that tell us about the kind of God we're talking about? And what are the implications of that when we're thinking about eschatology? That is a question. It's not necessarily telling you what the answer has to be, but it's a suggestive question. Now, as completely human, the Logos, the Word of God, represents all of humanity before God. And this is for most of Christian history, the, the standard view. And you read the church fathers, and they're, they're quite clear that Christ, as a human being, represents all human beings before God. Seems to be the way the New Testament thinks about it, too. So, that's quite significant. In fact, very significant, as, as we'll see. And in his capacity as our representative, as uh, before God, as a human being, he takes humanity beyond the roadblock of sin and death to eternal life. And this, this is, for me, this is going to be, and, and I'll unpack this in the next couple of sections, this is really pivotal in how we think about universalism. It's not just about thinking about this Bible text and this Bible text. It's thinking about the very gospel itself, the story of incarnation, death and resurrection, and what the implications of those are. If Christ represents humanity before God, and the story of Jesus then, going through death and resurrection is the story of humanity. This is, this is our destiny played out here as Jesus takes humanity through the roadblock and out the other side to, to uh, eternal life. So here is a question that we might think. Did Christ represent all humans or only some in the incarnation? So, you know, you might still not want to be a universalist, but... In this question, you might want to be a universalist. You might want to say, yes, Christ represents everybody in his humanity. Just like he created, you might want to be a universalist about creation. I would suggest you should be. Yes, God really did create everything. <laughs> Honest, <laughs> Gov. Or did he just represent some people? Uh, and that's the question that divides classical Calvinists from, uh, from its rivals. But the church fathers, I think, are, are clear on this, and, and they, they stress that Jesus stands in solidarity with all humanity in the incarnation. It's a, it's a fundamental idea uh, in, the, in the theology of incarnation. So, that then has implications, um, and our view of the incarnation flows from our view of creation, and it flows into our view of the cross. Because we have this view that all creation is made by God for this good purpose, uh, that flows into the view that the incarnation is for the sake of all creation and for the sake of restoring it. And that flows into how we think about the cross. Gregory of Nazien Gregory Nazianzen, uh, one of the Cappadocian fathers and perhaps the greatest of them, said famously, that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. And this is why it was so important that Christ was fully human, because our broken humanity has to be reforged and formed around him. The way I sometimes think about it, just as a faulty and not perfect illustration is, I imagine that we're like a rubber glove and that in creation, God models human beings on, I think that we're modeled particularly on the logos 
of God. So we're like a rubber glove that's been molded in the shape of a hand. And the logos is the hand. We're the rubber glove. But the sin like rips up and tears the rubber glove. So God's going to restore the rubber glove, the humanity. How's he going to do this? And what he does is that the hand itself lives as a rubber glove. <laughs> and it wears the sort of brokenness of our humanity. So Christ becomes incarnate, wears our humanity, and then in his crucifixion, he sort of melts it down, and in the resurrection, remolds it around himself, remaking our humanity in his resurrection. And so he takes on our humanity precisely in order that it can be healed and restored. So Christ dies for our sin, bearing their consequences, and that is a huge topic that can be filled out in various different ways. I don't want to dwell on it too much, but he stands with us in solidarity with us in our broken humanity and descends to the very depths, the place of no return from which humans all go and don't come back, the, the thing of death that ends our stories, and he goes beyond it so that it no longer becomes the thing that ends our stories. So he stands with us in the very depths of our alienation from God and, our, and from the divine life in the grave, the very thing that stops us ever getting towards that, the goal for which God created us. He stands there with us. And then he is raised from the dead, defeating sin and death. So here's a question then. Did Christ die to save all people or only some? And again, if you've been in Reformed circles, you know this is still a live question. And the Reformed Christians disagree on this. Uh, so if you're a five-point Calvinist, Christ died for some and not everyone. Lots of Calvinists wouldn't say that. They would or find some other way of trying to say, some way of trying to say Christ died for everyone. The, the idea that Christ died for some and not others is, is such a minority view in terms of Christian history and theology. I mean, virtually nobody else thinks it, but it's a real live issue for some Christians. But, but, but I ask it, and you know you can answer that for yourselves. And, and of course, if you think Christ died for everyone, I mean, you might be an Arminian, so the question is this. Was Christ's death for nothing in the case of many people? Maybe not absolutely nothing. It might have shown something about how much he loved them, but it actually had no effect. So was that the case? And maybe that's just the view that you're going to have to embrace. Or maybe... Maybe, in fact, everyone for whom Christ dies, uh, salvation will be, will be theirs. So, resurrection. Now, this, again, all of this flows out of this theology of incarnation. Because in the resurrection, the salvation of humanity is achieved, not merely made possible. So, remember, Christ is our representative. He represents humanity and our humanity. So, his resurrection... In his resurrection, we see the telos, the goal, the destiny of humanity. This is it, resurrection, and then ascension and, and cosmic rule. So in the resurrection, we see that Christ takes humanity in his own body, in his own humanity, past the roadblock of sin towards the destiny for which God has created it. And he's done it. The resurrection's happened. Salvation has happened, it has been achieved, done, finished, right? So what this means is salvation is done. It is achieved in the person of Christ, in the body of Christ. It is not simply made possible. Maybe I'm being a bit bold in saying that, but it seems to me that this is 
where the New Testament goes. So the resurrection is the end of the story. It's the eschaton breaking into the, into the present, in the middle of history. In the middle of history, here is the future. Here is the kingdom of God. Here is eternal life. Here is the new age. Right there in the risen Christ. That's it. It's happened. The, new, the kingdom has come. It's, it's begun. It's, it's here right now. So this is, you want to know how Christian eschatology works? It's the resurrection. That is the destiny of humanity. There it is. That's where we get our eschatology from. So the end is revealed in the resurrection. There it is, the end. Now, this, is, this relates to a question that um, a lot of theologians are very happy to be what they call hopeful universalists, which is to say, they say, we hope that God will save all people, and maybe God will, but we can't be dogmatic about that, or we can't be confident about that. And there's various reasons why they feel they can't be confident about that. I just want to tell you the reason why I am confident about that, and you can take it or leave it. It is said that to be confident that God will save all people is presumptuous. You're presuming to know what God will do when God hasn't said. And I say, well, God has said, because Christ has been raised from the dead. This is the revelation. In the gospel itself, in the evangel, or in the euangelion, this is the gospel. It is the proclamation of the resurrection of Christ. And there, God has revealed the destiny of humanity. I mean, that you couldn't get more core to Christian theology than that. So here is the future of the world, and it is resurrection. So it is evangelical in the true sense of the word. It's gospelly to be confident, I think, that God will restore all people because Christ has been raised from the dead. This is, why, this is what I mean when I say I'm an evangelical universalist. It's because I think that universalism arises from reflection on the gospel itself. This is my understanding of it. And you may disagree, but that's just explaining uh, where I'm coming from. So the end is revealed in the resurrection. And the resurrection then is a promise of what is to come. Because Christ has been raised, God will raise, God will raise us. The, the, the resurrection then is a promise that God will do for the rest of creation what God has done for Christ. And so the resurrection becomes a source of deep inspiration and hope to us. So here is a question for you to consider. In your mind, which determines the end of the story? Is it sin? Or is it Christ? Or is it a bit of both? Right, so is the ending of this symphony determined by sin? That leads to hell. Or Christ? That leads to salvation. Or is it a bit of both? So a universalist would say the ending of the symphony is determined by Christ. End of. And so I guess the question is, which of these alternative endings most glorifies Christ and his work? Is it the one where Christ's work works? <laughs> or is it the one where it partly works? <laughs> I know I'm putting it in a loaded way. I know it's cheating. It's cheating. But hey... I've got, I've got the microphone, I can cheat. <laughs> Hold on one fat second, buddy. I can hear you saying, or digger. The New Testament distinguishes between saved and the unsaved, and the elect and those who aren't elect. So it's all very well to have this sweet theology that you're constructing, but the fact of the matter is that the New Testament recognizes a distinction and you don't appear to be doing it. 
So here is what I say to that. It's true, and the distinction is important. The New Testament does distinguish between people who are saved and people who are not, and people who are elect and people who are not. So let me just say a few, this is a massive issue, so this is my take on that. Salvation, the salvation that God has achieved in Christ, has to be an existential and transforming reality in our individual and communal lives. Uh, it has to be something we participate in. And you will know this, but the New Testament talks about this in terms of past, present, and future terms. And so I'll just lay this, because it, it, it might seem a bit of a distraction, but it is important for framing some of the stuff I want to say. So in the past, of course, we are saved because Christ has been raised from the dead, and that's in the past. But also, the Holy Spirit works to unite us to Christ in baptism. You can tell I'm a bit of a sacramentalist here. Uh, and we're joined to Christ and his life by, by the Holy Spirit. So we can say, uh, if we're, there's a sense in which we have been saved in the past tense, in Christ. But of course, it's also true, and various New Testament texts say the Holy Spirit's working in our lives now, transforming us, making us more Christ-like. And, and in that sense, the language is in the present tense. We are being saved. We're working out our salvation with fear and trembling and so on. And there is also a future sense. The Holy Spirit will raise us from the dead. We will be glorified and so on. And the New Testament then talks about an anticipated salvation that we haven't received yet. We're awaiting salvation. So we will be saved in Christ. These are the different senses the New Testament talks about the way we existentially engage in, participate in, share in, live out the reality of the salvation that Christ has already achieved doesn't just happen instantly in our lives. It, it's a thing that is worked out and has a goal where it's fulfilled. And salvation is no use to us if we're not sharing in it, if we're not participating in it. It might be true that it's Christ has been raised from the dead and, and, and we're all saved, but if we're not sharing in the reality of that, we're not experiencing or living out the benefits of that. So that sort of forms a background to the way I and I think some of you might see this differently, but see the way the New Testament talks about people who are in and out of Christ. Some people are not yet participating in, in salvation. And, and in fact, all of us are only participating in it to varying degrees in, in an ongoing, deepening journey of participation and sharing in it. But the way I think the New Testament would frame these things is like this. Not to be united to Christ is to kind of remain in a mode of existence determined by sin and death, and in a mode of human existence that still can't lead towards life. And so New Testament would talk about, you know, those being living in Adam and those who are heading towards condemnation and so on, that death, remaining under judgment and so on, uh, that, that kind of thing. Because it's to remain, it's to remain outside the experience of the salvation that Christ has already won for us. So this raises an interesting question. <laughs> is such a person currently saved? And I think that the New Testament at different times could answer yes or no, depending on exactly what you mean by that. I mean, I know it sounds like trying to have my cake and eat it, but I do think that it would. So there is a sense in which, no, actually that person is genuinely saved. Yes, they are saved because Christ died for them and was raised from the dead for them, and in his risen body, they are saved. That, you know, that, that is a fact now. 
and yet they're not yet existentially in their own lived lives participating and sharing in it. So in that sense, no, they're not. And depending on the context, you can speak in either way, and both would be expressing an aspect of truth about the situation. Will such a person one day actively participate in the salvation in Christ? And that is the question, really. That's the question that the universalist would say yes to, and other people would say not necessarily. The universalist would say yes, because otherwise the story ends discordantly. Okay, so what about hell? Well, I think, you know, there are several things that, that, that we need to take into account as we sort of think through this. And I think the Bible is clear that there are two roads with two destinations, life and death. And it does matter then how we orientate ourselves in relation to God and other people and how we live. It does matter because there are ways of life that are life-giving and, and draw us closer to God and there are ways of life that do the opposite. And there is also, Scripture is clear, a judgment and a division uh, and di of people and different destinies. So that somehow has to factor into the way we think about this. The Bible's also clear. Avoid death. You know, it's what Jesus is saying with the two roads, you know. The wide road that leads to destruction. Lots of people take it. You should take the narrow road. I mean, that's what he, the little one that's difficult, and not many people take it, but you should take that one because the other one goes somewhere you don't want to go. So the Bible is urging us to follow the road that leads to life. But the real question as far as the issue of universalism goes is this. Is this second death, is it the ultimate fate or the penultimate fate of people? And that's really where the, the disagreement arises. A universalist would say, well, if it's a universalist that believes that people do actually go to post-mortem punishment, and not all of them do, so there are different versions of universalism, but the majority have thought that historically. They would say it's a penultimate fate, it's not the end of the story, that the end of the story has to be redemption from hell, or if hell isn't the word you want to use, redemption from this condition and the fulfillment of God's creative purposes for that person. If there was time, it would be nice to look through lots of particular texts about hell, but there isn't, so what I'm trying to do is give you a sort of framework in which those questions would have to be asked and, and posed. So is that hope beyond hell? Well, one of the reasons, I think, uh, for thinking of hell as a penultimate fate is that it allows us to hold together different teachings of the Bible on God's love and God's creative purposes and God's redemptive work in Christ and so on, and the universalist text about God bringing about all those purposes for the salvation of all, alongside the text about hell, it allows us, as Elhanan Winchester said, to hold together the threatenings and the promises. Of course, it's not the only way of holding them together, but one of, it, 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 does, it is a way that allows us to hold them together. One of the things that has been a real shibboleth, sort of, or as a basic starting assumption that's beyond question for many Christians, not just evangelicals, but Catholics and many Orthodox too, is that death is this point of no return. Uh, so your eternal destiny, whatever you choose, is going to be fixed at that point, and there's nothing you can do after that at all to, to, um, to, to change that. Now, 
it's not at all clear that this is, in fact, a biblical teaching. We just kind of assume it is. The only passage that ever, that, that really seems to sort of possibly lean in that direction is in Hebrews, which I'm sure you know the one. It's appointed for all people to die once, and then the judgment. But that actually doesn't resolve the question. I mean, it doesn't say, so, so yes, of course, a universalist agrees with that too. <laughs> right? Yes, everyone's appointed to die, and then there is judgment. And of course, death is an important milestone. The way I think about it is like, I think, do you have motorways here? Do you call them that? Okay. So like on a motorway, you have various sort of exits you can take. But if you miss the exit, I mean, there's nothing you can do about it. Um, you can't sort of drive back up the motorway the wrong way and, and go around. So if you miss the turning, you've got to go to the next junction and come off there, and it's a bit of a long route. It's really annoying. <coughs> it drives me crazy. And if you miss that one, you, you know, you, you've got to go for the next one. Now, I think there is, a, there is a sense in Scripture that there are various points of, if you go beyond them, then you've missed an important point, and the, the, you, it's unavoidable that you'll face judgment. And let me give you an example of this. In the book of Jeremiah, uh, God says to Jeremiah, repent or the Babylonians will destroy Jerusalem. And God, this is the message, repent or the Babylonians. And it gets to a point where God says to Jeremiah, it's too late now. Even if they repent, it's too late. It's going to happen. So that exit's been crossed. Jerusalem's now going to be destroyed. So now Jeremiah starts saying a different message. He says, surrender to the Babylonians, and it'll go better for you. But if you stay in the city, you're going to die. Some of them leave, and some of them stay. And the ones who stay, you know, they pass another thing, and, and they die. And so the point is that, the, you know, God does put in our lives, and death, I think, would be one of these things, important points that if you haven't done something by this point, judgment is inevitable, and you can't do anything about it before you face it and face the consequences. But, of course, it doesn't follow from that that there, is no, that there are no further exits further down the road that, that, that you can take. Whether there are or not is an, is, a, is an open question that would have to be reflected on in terms of other biblical texts and themes and so on and so forth. But that text in Hebrews itself isn't going to answer that question for you. All it's telling you is you've got death, you've got judgment. Yeah, well, we all agree with that. But what is interesting is, and I've already mentioned this, in the second and third century, there is a whole tradition, and you find this, there's at least seven or eight different texts in, uh, different Christian texts, in which the saints pray for those in the lake of fire and and they, there's a possibility of them coming out, and even Jesus inviting the saints to do this. And, so. and this was not considered an utterly ridiculous and incoherent notion. It was considered a perfectly plausible way of thinking about things. It didn't cross their mind that death is a point of no return beyond which one's fate is eternally sealed. We just kind of read that back, but that wasn't a settled issue at the time. And then another issue that fed into that was there was a lot of reflection on this, the theme of Christ's descent into hell in the early church. And there were different interpretations of it because the text, the text in Peter are ambiguous. Uh, this is Christ preaching to the dead, you know, who, who were the dead he was preaching to? And, uh, you know, were, were they even, you know, is this even about the underworld? And if it is, who was he preaching to? And does it imply universalism? Does it imply they can be... There's all sorts of issues. But there were more than a few in the early church. And one of the interpretations that was quite popular was that Christ was preaching repentance to people who died and gone to hell, and they 
could come out if they responded to the message. So that theme, even into the Middle Ages, when the doctrine, the classical theology of hell was really established, uh, you find this real hope for salvation beyond hell preserved in the way that that tradition played out in various liturgies and passion plays and so on. So the idea that, that your eternal destiny was fixed at death was certainly, is not obvious in scripture. You could, you could read it there if you want, but the scriptures are open and lots of people in the early church thought it was uh, certainly possible to have hope for salvation beyond death. There was nothing incoherent about the notion there. Hold on a minute. I imagine you saying, doesn't the Bible say that hell is everlasting? So I'll just say a few little words about that. First of all, it's not clear that the proof texts about hell actually require an everlasting hell. Again, you can read them like that, and, and reading some of them like that is not ridiculous, or, oh, what an idiot, how could anyone read the passage like that? Yeah, you really could read it like that, some of them. But not necessarily. Some of them are much too vague. So, you know, they say, yeah, if you go this way, there's condemnation, or there is death, or there is destruction. But this is very vague language, and, you know, and perfectly compatible with universalism. And as has been amply demonstrated time and again. So while you could read that kind of language as implying the end of the road, you certainly don't have to do that. And there's a real danger of over-interpretation, particularly, I think, among annihilationists, who will notice the imagery of destruction or something and say this requires annihilation, but it, it doesn't not the way the language functions in, in Scripture. And the language of death, again, I mean, in Scripture, death, you know, I mean, the dead were not seen as non-existent in Scripture, so being dead isn't the same as being annihilated. Uh, it was a, oftentimes used, oh, you're dead in your sins, you know. I mean, it doesn't mean you don't exist. It just, it's a state of alienation and being, and being cut off from God. So we have to be careful with the language. But even a lot of the explicit passages that do talk about eternal destruction and so on, eternal death, are also not clear. So this, a lot of this hinges on, and you'll be familiar with this, many of you, how we interpret the Greek ionios, uh, everlasting. So if you read about the topura to ionion, the eternal fire, kolasin uh, ionion, the uh, eternal punishment, does Ionion mean eternal or everlasting, or does it mean something else? I argued, uh, very briefly, but I argued in the Evangelical Universalist that the idea in those passages is when it's, Ionion means belonging to the age to come, that's the, the idea. So the eternal punishment is the punishment of the age to come. Eternal fire is the fire of the age to come. Whether that punishment and fire is eternal is not addressed. Whether it lasts forever or not is not addressed. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. It's just, an, it's just not resolved by the passage. So the classic passage here is, is the sheep and the goats. So the classic passage is the sheep and the goats, and the, the sheep go to eternal life, and the, the goats go to eternal death. And St. Augustine made a really important move in the way he read this text. So he said, look, you can't say that, and remember, Augustine is reading his Bible in Latin. 
He can't read Greek very well. And in the Latin Bible, it really does say eternal punishment. So we have to be fair to him. This is what he thinks it says. It really does say eternal punishment, eternal life. So he says you can't say that eternal punishment is not eternal for the... Because if it's not eternal for the goats, then eternal life isn't eternal either. And, and nobody wants to say that, because look, they're in parallel. The one goes to eternal punishment, the other goes to eternal life. And so if you're going to get rid of eternal punishment, you've killed eternal life at the same time. Oh, you don't want to do that. And so that argument became really very influential. I mean, he was correct. They are in parallel. So whatever it means, it means I think it means the same thing in both cases. And this became really influential, and it's a regularly repeated argument as to why this passage has to mean everlasting punishment. But in fact, my view was, and, and remains, uh, this is, a comp it is parallel. The, the one goes to the life of the age to come, the other one goes to the punishment of the age to come. Okay? How long do they last? It doesn't say, it doesn't even talk about that. Is it, they will, <laughs> there will be questions there, but the parable, the parable and the language used here will not answer those questions for you. You have to go elsewhere to find the answers. And I think in this case, you know, we know that everlasting life actually is everlasting because, not because of this passage and not because the word Ionios is used, we know it's everlasting because in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that they're raised with an indestructible body, it's incorruptible and so on. Uh, it's like the body of Christ, right? So our resurrection has a theological principle behind it, it's the life of Christ in us. That's everlasting, right? But that's the basis of our thinking is everlasting, not because the word Ionios is used in this parable. Well, we have no such theological principle underpinning eternal punishment. You know, you, you can't say, oh, people are punished in hell. It's got to be forever because Christ was raised from the dead. And Christ. I mean, there is, no, there is no theological principle underpinning that in the way there is underpinning the life. Basically, then, I'm not saying that my reading of of that passage in Matthew is, is the correct one. I'm saying it, it's, it's a perfectly plausible one and it, makes the, it means that the text is not inconsistent. I don't think it answers the question how long it lasts. And maybe Matthew thought it lasted forever. I don't know. He's dead. I can't ask him. Same thing with the lake of fire, another interesting text, and I'll just be very brief about this. Uh, the lake of fire in the book of Revelation, which is the most ferocious passage about hell in the Bible and the chap bit in chapter 14 of Revelation, the smoke ascending forever and ever and the, their torment, the, the smoke of their torment ascending forever and ever. I have a long and involved and overly complicated chapter about this in the Evangelical Universalist but the one thing to, to say is this let's just take that passage about the lake of fire. It's, part of, it's in a context, it occurs in a context and in the context we see the people who are thrown into the lake of fire subsequently entering the New Jerusalem. And I think this makes sense in terms of the internal logic of the, uh, of the symbolism and imagery within the book of Revelation. So the, king, the kings of the earth and the nations of the earth, all the way through the book of Revelation, have a very clear and distinct identity. They are those from whom the church has been called out, and they are the enemies of Christ and the church. In the book of Revelation, the nations and the kings of the earth fight against Christ and they persecute the church and so on. They're deceived by the beast and there's lots and lots of reference to them. So the readers of Revelation know exactly who these people are and they are not, the one thing they are not is the church. <laughs> uh, they are the opposite and they are the people who are defeated by Christ and, and in the lake of fire 
And yet, then in chapter 21 of Revelation, we read this thing that, that the nations and the kings of the earth, the doors of the city are ever open, the nations and the kings of the earth are bringing their treasures into it. And the way this is usually read is, well, these are Christian nations and kings of the earth. But this is not how kings of the earth and nations ever function in the book of Revelation to this point. These are the people who we've been given all these, these are the people who are the baddies who've rejected Christ, and yet now they've washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb and they're entering New Jerusalem. And I think this is a real image of hope, hope beyond hell, where people have, have gone to hell, however you understand that, and are now enter, exiting hell and entering the New Jerusalem. I mean, there will be people who can test that reading, but I, I, I think contest that reading, but I think it's a, and lots of people also think it's a very plausible reading of the text of Revelation. And what that alerts us to is that the imagery of hell, which is really strong and fierce and looks like eternal conscious torment, actually when it's situated within its wider context, isn't functioning in that way at all. And it makes us alert that we need to be really cautious of over-interpreting some of the language and, and uh, getting theologies out of it that go beyond what it would, would warrant. So in sum, in summation, this is what universalists believe, that all those created by God will be brought to the destiny for which God created them, that all those God desires to save and whom Christ came to save will be saved, that Christ, not sin, will determine the future of the cosmos and that everlasting hell is unevangelical in the actual sense of ungospelish, because it thwarts God's purposes in creation and salvation, and it seems incompatible with the God of the gospel, which is to say the God who is holy love, not just holy or love or pitting one part of God against another part, but everything that God does is holy and just and loving. There's, uh, so I just end with a thought from, I think it might be that Marigold Hotel movie. I'm trying to remember where I heard it. Uh, There's a chap who says something like, um, it'll be all right in the end. And if it's not all right, it's not the end. And it I think Origen might have sort of rephrased it slightly, but with the same sort of thought. He, Origen would have said, in the end, God will be all in all. And if God isn't all in all, it's not the end. Uh, because for Origen, if God is, an, or Gregory of Nyssa, if God is all in a creature, then God has so filled that creature that evil has been eradicated from them and they have been sort of perfected in Christ. And if God is all in all creatures, then all creatures have had sin eradicated from them and they've perfected. So if we're at a state in which that is not the case, then it's not the end. But in the end, God will be all in all. The end. I want to respond with a couple of thoughts of my own uh, as you talked, which was, I thought, wonderful. I think what you talked about and the way you've finished with a topography of salvation that absolutely centralises Christ was, uh, I think, what I find so attractive. It's not so much universal salvation, it's salvation. 
and um, it's scope. When, when you were talking about God in Christ and acting and saving everything in, 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 in Christ, and that if you allow something to not be saved, then somehow or other the maximisation of what was done in Christ is limited. Christ, Christ's salvation and resurrection becomes some discrete element that I could draw a ring around and say, well, it's actually an element in the cosmos. It doesn't radiate throughout the whole cosmos. But then, uh, then you've limited the, the salvation. What I find thrilling in Gregory and Origen and even Irenaeus is this sense of the radiating, inevitable radiation of this enormous power of God that will not be denied. The book you haven't mentioned a lot, which is close to my favourite one, is Hebrews. And I think, I actually think Hebrews may well be the most inspiring of all. And the reason I do is one of my critiques of, I suppose, evangelical Protestant Reformed theology is it's very cross-centred. It's not very resurrection-centred. The operating methodology is all left to the cross, you know, because it's a punitive forensic model of sins forgiven and the resurrection is an exit door that's all it is whereas in what you've talked about the resurrection is they're both together but it's the operating model because the recreation of matter in Christ the reason I, I, I like Hebrews is the intriguing thing to me in Hebrews is when he he's whinging for the first half of the book about they're not going to get what he's talking about because they're stuck in this old mindset of an ironic priesthood and he said you don't understand yet what I want to talk to you about which is the order of Melchizedek and as you know he defines that as the power of an endless life and this is a new order this is the modality and operating principle of the Christ and he then picks up what I think equally becomes a backing of what you're saying which is the temple imagery and which is that Jesus had this extraordinary description that his body is the temple. And that word temple just gets expanded out to become the cosmos. His body is the whole cosmos. And so as, as stunning as Paul's statements are, that all things are in him, the temple imagery is there. And, and, and if that body is resurrected and saved, the cosmos is resurrected and saved. Yeah. Which is... Uh, I think that's right. Mm. In fact, I mean, I haven't took, there's, a, there's a very ancient idea that you, that you find in lots of different strands. That the, and it was big in the Renaissance, but it long predates it. Uh, that the human body is like a microcosm of the cosmos. Yeah. Uh, and that a human being represents all the different aspects of, of creation. And so the redemption of humanity is, in, is deeply related in the way they thought about human, humanity to the, to the rest of the cosmos and implications for the cosmos. Yes, and I mean, one of, as one of my favourite books as a designer, uh, which Richard Buchanan, my friend, first recommended to me, was Pico's 1427 thesis you know, that, uh, on the dignity of man, which takes that whole idea that to be a human, that a humanity is a microcosm of all reality. Mm-hmm. And um, as you were talking, I mentioned quite a bit about cognitive or a few snippets about cognitive theory and thinking and reality in my first response but close to my favorite thinking tool 
or linguistic tool which seems to capture the mystery of reality is synecdoche. Synecdoche was a Greek, a subset of metaphor. It's a Greek word and it is the linguistic feature by which we use a part to represent a whole. That's what it literally meant. So a, a simple example would be the phrase, the crown. You know, I use the phrase, the crown. It's actually a tiny, tiny little part of government that I use it, and we all do, to say it's, it's government. You know? Language unitizes all experience. So we have the power in synecdoche to actually say, am I looking at a part? No, I'm actually looking at the whole. Mm. And it's, it's, a, it's a technique that probably has its parallel in fractals in quantum mm. mechanics mm. that our whole sense of bits and pieces is wrong. I can be looking at a microcosmos and I have the whole. Mm. I have it all there. There's mm. no more to it. I don't need to go. And I think Paul, uh, to me, one of the most thrilling, thrilling things Paul ever said is he's quoting Moses in Deuteronomy. Romans says, well, look, don't think you need to kind of sail across the sea to find God. Don't think you need to dive down. He's right there in front of you. Just this, this one life was, had everything. And so I think, as you were talking about, look, that, you know, first of all, the patristic father's saying all of humanity is in Christ and therefore all the salvation is enacted in Christ. I was thinking about this tremendous power of uh, synecdoche, which we know, which is a part that actually doesn't represent the whole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I never thought of it like that. But yeah. you're, I mean, that is right, yeah. And, so, and, and, I, and I, I, it hit me one day, I know I was driving down to a client down south, and I can remember where I was on the road, and it suddenly hit me how synecdoche, which is all about scale leverage, it's mm. all about, it, it just suddenly hit me as that's the cross. Yeah. Yeah, three days, I'm going to recreate the cosmos. Three days, that's all it'll take. And, and I'm just going to work... 4.30 p.m., late in the afternoon, hill outside Jerusalem, one life, and I'll recreate the cosmos. And it's the greatest example of scale leverage in humanity. 